Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. I'll say hi, Lee. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for joining us. And this is a weekly segment featuring the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, we'll dive right into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of the February 21st, 2023. <clears throat> All right, Lee, I was going to start off with, it's a blog at, I'm going to mispronounce this probably, but Sequoia, um, but basically it's copycat of multiple info stealers kind of bundled into one so some code reuse and tactics and technique reuse but it falls under a ransomware or not a ransomware a malware called steelsy or been dubbed that and it's interesting you know it's something that hit the russian like marketplace you know on the the darker webs if you want to call it uh, and they were giving people access to test it and try it out and things as well and Plymouth is the name of the group that's been publicizing this as far as trying to share their, I think it's their code they developed and pushing it out there. And it seems to be targeting a lot of, uh, you know, just typical end users, not necessarily companies and things, but some of the techniques are interesting as well as, you know, what they're actually after. So they're, they're going after all sorts of kind of passwords and cookies and, you know, cryptocurrency wallets and stuff so it's kind of like a smash and grab but they do start off with macro enabled documents to help try to push this out uh, and then they have some command line type stuff that they gets run that was interesting but they, they also leverage a lot of dll's as far as when they hit or or infect let's say your machines they pull down multiple dll's and a lot of them are legitimate dll's um and I think there's seven listed, but it's kind of interesting for them to be pulling down a lot of files like that. But when I was looking at things to like consider and look for, um, one was, you know, anytime you see DLLs kind of hitting non-traditional directories, that's kind of something worth looking at. And actually in a lot of the IOCs they showed for like the URLs being hit, you know, it's always interesting when you see URLs that end in, you know, .exe, as far as the full URL string or .dll or any kind of file type that could be executable because obviously that's a possible download of some sort of malicious payload. And there was a lot of direct IP callouts. So that was another thing. So just like putting those two things together, I think makes it very easy to identify at least some of the network traffic when this lands. And then they did a lot of like sleep stuff. So there was some command line stuff where they wanted to like do a timeout, um, stall, you know, call the command line, for like five seconds and then they did like a quiet delete so they had to delete with the slash f slash q flags to specific paths um so those i think are very common kind of low low level ways to perform those tasks uh, so looking for those things in combination either all, you know presented on the same command line because their examples did show that it was kind of all these commands concatenated with an ampersand but you know obviously looking for these separately could be useful too but that was kind of a just a Hey, this is kind of out there. They pulled from you know multiple families of the same type of stuff. Still, some common techniques, uh, 
but it's interesting to kind of study kind of how they were able to pull all this stuff together and how they they ran it. So I just kind of pulled out some interesting things that are always good to look for as a threat hunter. So I don't know if you had time to check this one out, Lee. What are your thoughts? So the first thought that I always think about whenever, like you were mentioning DLLs, uh, what comes to mind is messing with the search order or the locate, like you said, the location of the DLLs. Now, could you could you highlight why like sometimes a threat actor would put a DLL in the same location as a malicious executable, or why that is handy, or um, what does that gain them? Yeah, so a lot of times with like the search order hijacking, you know, when you have an executable that needs to leverage a DLL, especially if you're trying to hide your malicious code in a DLL, and you want to use a legitimate executable to basically kick that off, the search order usually goes for either a hard-to-find path that is in the executable. So if the executable says it needs to be in this specific path, that's where it looks for first. If it doesn't find any hard-coded path or a DLL reference, then it looks for the DLL it's looking for that's JSON or next to it in the same directory or folder. They then try to execute that. So a lot of times that's what you do see is, is that instance. And then last place that a lot of times these DLLs are looked for is in the, like the Windows like System32 type directory, right? Where the kernel code or kernel based things kind of live and it goes there last as a kind of last resort, or if it's you know a common DLL to the system, that's kind of where it goes there last. It uses that, so that's kind of like the path of that kind of search order hijacking and how people leverage it. Thanks. Yeah, because I was saying along the same line. I was just making sure that you know I was aligned with what was going on, but that that does make a lot of sense, and you know that's a neat feature to look for, or not feature, an interesting hunt to go on, right? Right. Right, so well, what do you got on, on your slot? Oh, so my first article is from Sentinel Labs. It's titled WIP26 Espionage, Threat Actors Abuse or Abuse Cloud Infrastructure and Targeted Telco Attack. Now, uh, I really like Sentinel Labs articles because they normally break them down into a storytelling element, but they also provide a lot of technical details as well. And always, it's interesting to gravitate to the cloud instances. You know, Anytime I see cloud in the title, whether it is, you know, they're attacking the cloud or they're using, they're running their servers in the cloud for, you know, for malicious C2 servers, I always like to see what the combination is because, um, you know, as we move, or as more organizations move towards the cloud, you wonder what that threat hunting looks like. And at the end of the day, going through the article, reading about how the, their initial vector was WhatsApp messages to employees that you know would take them to a malicious site and they would download something like a PDF, uh, you know, and that would be their initial access. But once they get in there, you know, once they, the threat actors get into the environment, it looks like they just run a scheduled task, um, which it in this case it kind of uh, layered on the miter attack techniques that you normally see. So there's a scheduled task with a malicious executable named update.exe. So it's not only is it creating this good task, but it's also masquerading at the same time. And the location that they stored it in was the C users public documents. So, you know, some, something to keep an eye on is, you know, is that a normal location for things to get saved to? Is that a location your organization uses at all? But it's always really interesting to see that at the end of the day, it appears that the threat actors are always shifting back to uh, the standard tactics, techniques, and procedures that have been working for years, even if they are tweaking it for the cloud, 
in, in this instance, really, it kind of looked all the same. So I, I just find that very interesting because, you know, the cloud is this mysterious data lake that everyone knows about, but, you know, what does it really look like? No, yeah, I thought this was a very fascinating find because, you know, the the use of the cloud and you, you're starting to see some, you know, actors get kind of creative under, or understanding that if they can use infrastructure that is kind of common or available to the clouding providers, it's much easier to blend in because I don't know how often I've seen where you see a lot of strange activity because like Microsoft type products, especially they're, they're very talkative to Microsoft. So when you start seeing activity going to Microsoft, as far as like IPO in space or whatever, um, or Azure, you start as a security person, you start saying, okay, that's the normal level stuff. And you kind of turn off your, hey, is there anything interesting here? And I think they definitely take advantage of that. And it's always interesting for them to take advantage of, you know, the data analytics side, because they're using the Microsoft's graph API and their graph database. So it's like, you know, Microsoft and others have opened up the ability for people to like move and utilize data because data is so powerful. Um, and so when it comes to adversaries using C2 or other types of mechanisms where you need to move essentially data, just not the same volumes, it becomes achievable. But the the thing I, I thought as well as, you know, the scheduled test, um, you know, tactic, tactic that they use, very common off, you know, right off the run. But the other thing I, I always think about is, I don't know how often I've seen update or launch be part of whatever executable they're trying to masquerade or hide as what's going to be run on a system. Because, you know, a lot of times what people do is they, you know, want to do a process list when they're investigating and they see update or update, whatever. And sometimes it makes you mentally skip over it because you're like, oh, it sounds like one of these things is just stall with action. I feel like if you were to you know look at like just program file paths where things get installed, you know, standard system level paths that usually are protected, like those paths are special because you have to be administrator to actually put things there, then, you know, then look for the, the strings for update or launch in any kind of executable type um, uh, extension. And then I feel like you'd actually find some, a lot of things that I've seen come across in reports. Um, but you're kind of, and you're almost like hunting the human because that's kind of what they're trying to leverage. There's no like technical thing they're performing. They just know that, hey, I know how people think. And so if I do these things, I can bypass the human element. But in, in this sense, you're kind of taking advantage of what they're trying to take advantage of on the human side to, to hunt for them. So I always thought that would be like an interesting hunt to perform. But yeah, that's all I got. No, I agree. It is interesting one. that they are attacking the human on both sides because you know the no one wants to or you, you throw something up on the screen and say, hey, update now, you're vulnerable. The human wants to say, yeah, let me help. And then on the same side, like you said, going through the um, the logs, if you see update, you might bypass it and be like, oh, good. You know, we got people updating. That makes sense. It's the timing. Was it batch Tuesday, et cetera? But yeah, it's interesting to see that point of view. Absolutely. So yeah, so the next one I was looking at, um, it's from threatmon.io and it's called the APT side copy targeting Indian government entities. So I don't know if, if you recall, but I want to say it's back in 2021. SideCopy was an APT that was being um, kind of talked about as far as attacking the Indian energy sector um, with, with a remote access Trojan or RAT. So this is just interesting. It kind of came up again, and they're you know, now focusing on like Indian 
faith-based government entities. So obviously it's an APT associated with someone that's just kind of after, you know, Indian general as far as uh, whatever the motives may be. But, you know, this was a good example of, hey, they, you know, have this rat that they talk about as, you know, somewhat new or, you know, newish, but it's still, there's a lot of similar techniques that are being utilized. So, you know, when they were kind of walking through, obviously it's a, it's a macro enabled document. So you can kind of see that as a, a potential. But the one thing about this document that I always like to see that's interesting to me is it actually kicks off the macro when you close the document, not when you open it. And I feel like sometimes this helps bypass some detections or, you know, some controls because controls will look for, hey, is it going to do something when you open it like that moment? Or for instance, sandboxing, if there's some sort of sandboxing technology there that's supposed to say, hey, when we open this, well, a lot of sandboxes don't close things. So, you know, it might miss that type of detection when you're like, hey, I ran this, you know, document through our sandbox. I didn't get any hits. And it's like, well, yeah, it's because basically canceled the session and then terminated the, the instance versus closing the document. And so, you know, something to consider there. But then, you know, they were able to basically pull and create an executable by what they, they ran from that macro. And so it's always interesting if you were to do process paths and you see that, hey, why was a document opened and then later when you follow the you know, process chain there's a file being written that's an executable or like an executable type extension um, that's always just to me a red flag right but in this case they're writing an executable directly to the startup folder and the start menu program startup folder which is their way of persistence right it's just like hey if you put it something in that folder then when that user logs in and it starts up and then they get into their session it kicks off whatever executables are there so, you know, pretty low level technique for persistence, which I always find interesting for these things. Um, but yeah, it's a typical rat where they're able to basically look at information on the systems, do screenshots. Um, they can push things to the clipboard, you know, execute whatever they want, kind of have the interactive access. Um, so, you know, very versatile rat, but typical to what you see with most rats these days. Um, so, yeah, it was just kind of interesting to see, you know, when groups are get labeled as APT, sometimes people get so stuck in the, man, this is a, such an advanced threat. I don't know how I'm going to find APTs. And it's like, no, it doesn't necessarily mean they're everything they do is advanced, but the persistence part is the more important part. It's just because you beat them once, you expect them to come back and they're not going to come back exactly the same. You know, they might reuse some things that they don't think you caught those things. So that's the part people need to focus on when they think of it, like looking at APT reports, isn't how advanced is the attack, but if this thing, this entity was going after me, how persistent are they gonna stay with it? Do I be dealing with these types of things? So yeah, that's kind of all I got there. What do you have on? No, I completely agree with that. The term APT has been used from anywhere between, you know, a 16 year old social engineering, a, an organization to get to their crown jewels, to a state-sponsored actual threat acting group. And you're right, the persistence is, I find this interesting because this goes back to your history with energy, you know, seeing it pop up again. And like you said, persistence. When you're looking for ways that this threat actor might come back at you, you might wanna take a look, like you said, take a look at what they've done before and what tac tactics, techniques, or, or procedures exist out there that they may have used already and you just don't know, or they might come back using a different way. It might be months, it might be years, but yeah, I always find that, you know, that's an interesting point of view. 
Yeah, so that's all I got on that one. What do you have on your next one? The next one is from the OnLab or the, um, the ASIC, the OnLab security team, I believe. It's called HWP malware using this using the steganography technique. And the tech or the APT group is Red Eyes and Scarcroft. Basically, this uh, threat actor, which I find interesting, you know, steganography being used to hide their activity and what they're providing. Uh, but you know, once again, the idea of going back to the fundamentals of threat hunting, it could be a tactic like steganography. It could be a vulnerability. But when it comes down to it, whatever the case may be, whatever vulnerability was exploited or whatever data was dropped or, you know, implant or implanted in their environment through steganography, the follow-up steps are probably going to look the same. You know, if they use steganography for their initial access or, you know, not their initial access, but to deliver the malware, then great. You know, that's how it came. But what's going to follow after that? You know, you got the persistence, you got the actions on, you got the scheduled tasks, you got all these items to look for. While I find the steganography aspect fascinating um, because it is a just very interesting way to hide or evade the defenses of the organization you're targeting. Looking through the report, there's persistence through the Windows current version run key. So that, you know, there's that again. There's um, PowerShell information going on. Uh, it looks like uh, you know, the way that the threat actors are going about it is very similar to the ways that most of them go through. They're still completing the different tasks. They're still exfiltrating data. You know, they're still hitting those key points. And if you can focus more on the actions of the adversary versus the exact way they did it and what the tactics were uh, or which tactics were used, I think you'll find the threat actor faster, and then you can start ironing out those details later. It, that's why this, you know, this once again was a very fascinating and informative article. But that's what you know came back to my mind was once again, it looks different. You know, a little, a couple of the steps may look different, but normally once that environment is compromised, it normally looks the same. Yeah, it's always interesting to see, and you know, I think that's why we have so many good frameworks to kind of map all that out because it kind of feels traditional even though there is some creativity when you look at unique attacks sometimes but the one thing that i when i looked at this article that uh kind of irritated me and it's only because i took a you know my back in my college days i took a course on steganography and kind of what it is and if you look at the picture they supplied for the defense evasion for the wallpaper that they apparently pulled down it's not a digestible picture it is clearly just like random colors because it's not code hidden in a picture i look at it more as a wrapper because even if you look at the um they looked at the header of the file it's got a jpeg header so that's how you know when your operating system looks at the header to figure out how to run this file it sees it as oh it's a jpeg file because it's in the header but immediately following that is the file size of the executable that's encoded in there and then the xor key so it can like basically decrypt it and then the rest of all the binary data isn't anything to do with pictures. It's literally the executable with a JPEG wrapper. So I thought that was kind of a poor use of steg steganography terminology, because usually it's like, hey, I got a picture of a cat. Inside the cat, there's a secret message by doing like least significant bit encoding and stuff like that. But I get their point. And, you know, it, it's interesting to see how, you know, just doing that can help bypass a lot of things, obviously. 
And then the other thing that I thought it was interesting, and I had to actually look it up because I don't see it that often, but when they were looking at the PowerShell command stuff where they actually use, they were running ping. And I'm always interested to see how adversaries use ping. And in this case, they use the dash W flag. And I, I've never used the dash W flag. I know I've seen it before when people tried to use it, but I've never seen an attack report reference it. So I had to refresh what that was. And it was basically the timeout waiter. And it was their way to do delayed execution where they did a ping dash in one, basically saying, just do one single ping and then a dash W with the wait in seconds. And they did like 340,328 seconds. And they had to do a public IP that they knew wouldn't respond. And I guess they used the same IP they used back in 2021 as they use now, which is 2.2.2.2. And it was really interesting. It was like, oh, it's another interesting way to basically create that delayed execution, you know, for sandboxing, evading sandboxing and stuff like that. And they did increase the delay by another like 40,000 seconds than the previous edition of this that happened in, I think, 2021. So I don't know. I thought that was really an you know, novel way to try to achieve the same thing. Like you were talking about earlier, you know, all these attackers kind of always do the same thing, but they find slightly different ways to tweak it. And that's what we try to attention to as defenders, especially threat hunters, because that's kind of like their fingerprint. You can fingerprint those things and you really know you, you nailed down who you're looking at. Uh, so yeah, that was a cool find. Thank you. And what do you have next for us? So this one I, I thought was interesting, and it's only because of all the things I've always talked about before, but it's called, um, it's a, from the Google Threat Analysis Group, and it's Fog of War, How the Ukraine Conflict Transformed the Cyber Threat Lands. And I know they're going to talk, they, in the article they talk through, like, oh, look at all these different cyber attacks and how, you know, things were, you know, they had way more attacks during this time period versus a few years ago, and I thought that was kind of funny. It's like, oh, Ukraine had more cyber attacks before the war, or more cyber attacks after the war started. Yeah, I was kind of like, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? But I always talk about in previous podcasts and discussions, you know, paying attention to geopolitical struggles kind of helps you dictate you know, where your threats might be or might be coming from. And then I saw this and they had a really good graph of showing like the amount of spam versus phishing campaigns, and, you know, and the waves and, and so forth that go back to like 2021 all the way to like present, right? We're almost present. And it was interesting to see, and they mark when Russia invaded Ukraine, like how much before the invasion did the uptick in cyber attacks occur? And I remember, uh, I'm going to blank on what the documentary was, but it was basically a guy who worked for the NSA, and he used to study communications that were encrypted communications in World War II. Or maybe it was after World War II. But either way, like he, he didn't have view into the communications, what was being said, but he was able to do accurate predictions based on frequency and based on where the communications were going to, right? So who are the targets of the communications and how often they happen? And he'd say, something's going to happen in the next week or so because this is upticked here in this area and we should expect some sort of advancement. And he was relatively almost all the time. Um, and I, I was thinking about dad. that when I was... Yeah, no, I, I'll have to... It's one of my favorite documentaries. It's kind of conspiracy theorists as well, but there's some just great data insights as far as how to look at data. But either way, looking at this data made me think doing the inverse, like knowing geopolitical struggles might help you predict what threats you may have to face. Um, but knowing, especially like a higher level at the government level, when you start seeing an uptick in a certain area or, or something, that could be a predecessor to something big as well. And in this case, like we've never had the cyber 
attack capability like it is today before a war, so to speak, right? And now we have a great model to say, hey, this is what potential conflict or leading to a conflict could look like by looking at the you know inflation of attacks and the targeting of the attacks, the theme of the attacks, and all that kind of stuff happening. I thought that was just kind of really cool to look at this kind of data that way. And they do a great job kind of breaking out the different phases of the attacks, the, the volume of the attacks, and tying it to, you know, uh, the real world timeline of, you know, the conflict prior to the conflict, you know, way before the conflict to say, you know, what was relatively normal. And so just really interesting data and graphs to kind of give the look. And I know that's not their necessary take. I mean, they're making those ties, obviously. Uh, but man, wouldn't this be really good data for if, you know, you're, you're a country that you feel like might be a potential conflict. These are things to possibly be looking for and modeling too. So I thought that was really interesting. It is looking at all these different ways of prediction, especially through that, it blows my mind. Yeah, I'm trying to think. The documentary I think is called The Great American. Uh, I'll have to double check that. I'll I'll try to put that in the notes for this for this podcast so that you know hopefully people can find it. I think it was it's available on YouTube even, but it was tied to uh, a guy who said that back then you know the NSA was training on like a hundred different things to identify and how you can predict things and he was like i nailed it down to like four things you can answer these four questions he didn't say what they specifically were but from an intelligence person he basically said yeah you don't need to train on 100 things train on these four and you can make these types of predictions um but either way uh, but yeah so i think that kind of sums up our five interesting topics that we were going to kind of cover from a hunting perspective but before we close out i definitely wanted to do a call out um one y'all our next live podcast that we're going to do we do a monthly live podcast where we interact with people through discord and try to dive deeper into some topics and it's not so article centric it's more experience driven as far as the people we have on that's going to be march 16th from 7 to 8 30 p.m eastern standard time so you know if you enjoy this conversation it's definitely way more involved and way more entertaining as well i'm going to the live ones also you know lee here who's with us, he's going to be doing his live workshop that's going to cover lateral movement where he basically can get data, hunt alongside Lee, and shows you how he looks at some lateral movement techniques and how to identify them using technology and real data, which is always an awesome opportunity with a little capture the flag um, instance at the end that lets you basically get your badge to show that you attended and were able to achieve you know, successful hunting for lateral movement level one. Um, so don't miss out on those. But, you know, with all that said, thanks to everyone for joining this episode of Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. We're looking back to syncing up with everyone next week. So that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of February 21st, 2023. Take care, everyone. Happy hunting. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.